You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey, it's Motley Fool Money co-host Dylan Lewis here. If you're listening to us, it's because you love following the stock market and learning about business stories. If you're looking to keep learning and unlocking your potential, then you should check out the Think Fast, Talk Smart podcast produced by our friends over at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. Think Fast, Talk Smart is the Webby Award-winning best business podcast that's received nearly 43 million downloads and is the number one career podcast in 95-plus countries, so you know it's worth your time. Each week, host and Stanford lecturer Matt Abraham sits down with experts to discuss the best tips to hone and develop your communication skills, from making small talk that leaves a big impression, to keeping your nerves in check while speaking, to being more persuasive. Whether you're working on your elevator pitch or planning an important meeting, Strong communication skills are important in business and life in general. That's why you'll hear from pros like neuroscientist Andrew Huberman on how to manage speaking anxiety, as well as speechwriter, best-selling author, and friend of the fool Dan Pink on how to take risks in your communication, and psychologist Kelly McGonigal on how to harness nervous energy to fuel powerful presentations. All that and so much more available on the Think Fast Talk Smart podcast. So what are you waiting for? Listen every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube. Hey everyone, I'm Jean Chatsky. Thank you so much for joining us today on Her Money. In the last few months, there is a very good chance that you or someone you know may have changed jobs. 4.3 million workers quit their jobs just in August of this year, according to the Labor Department. That is the highest number ever on record. The pandemic has truly forced many of us to reevaluate what it is we want to do every day, how we want to spend our time, which is why the great resignation, as it's been called, is expected to continue into 2022. But this change we're seeing, it may only be the beginning. The 21st century is going to be the most disruptive period humanity has ever ever lived through, according to my guest today. By 2030, it's estimated that 30% of all jobs as we know them now will be impacted by automation, displacing up to 800 million people. And over the next three decades, it's estimated that AI will impact up to 99% of jobs. Ouch. In the decades to come, we are going to see vast changes in the economy, local and global, in technology, with the rise of artificial intelligence, and in how we work. All of this is according to the new book by our guest, Brett King, which hits bookshelves this month. It's called The Rise of Techno-Socialism, How Inequality, AI, and Climate Will Usher in a new world. Brett is the host of the popular podcast, Breaking Banks. He's author of the international bestseller, Augmented, and is the founder of Movin, a mobile banking platform. Brett, welcome. I'm so excited to have you here today. Thank you very much, Jane. It was a, it was a really uh, interesting introduction. Thank you. Sure. Tell me what is techno-socialism? So obviously, when people hear the term, they're probably going to think, you know, politics and socialism, but actually it's looking at two broad forces. And this is in response to growing economic uncertainty, as you sort of alluded to. But the first is the ability we have through automation to make big government small. 
And so it's economically very much on the right in terms of reducing the cost of governance, reducing the cost of provision of universal basic services um, and so forth through high levels of automation at a national level. And then on the left, it's a move to much more progressive or collective social policy, particularly as we need to work more together on problems like climate change, climate mitigation, you know, food scarcity globally, 300 million to a billion eco-refugees potentially, all of, all of these big problems that require humanity to work together. And so that's the sort of two spectrums, if you like, of techno-socialism. Why this book right now? Are we at some sort of an inflection point? I absolutely think we are. The pandemic really illustrated that capitalism doesn't have all the answers, particularly when you have a crisis come upon you rapidly, like we did with the pandemic. And we are going to have rolling crises of sort of really fundamental nature to our societies over the next 20 to 30 years. So you mentioned one, artificial intelligence with its impact on uh, employment or techno unemployment, as we phrase it. And obviously climate change is in there. But the biggest problem facing the US right now, which has led to the great resignation, is the problem of inequality. The US has the highest inequality of any modern nation at any time in history, you know. And so during the pandemic, we saw the wealth of the US billionaires climb by $1.6 trillion. Total net worth of billionaires around the world, over $10 trillion for the first time during the pandemic. And that means today that the richest Americans own more than 90% of the bottom of the economic pyramid in the US. This is an unsustainable situation. You know, if you look throughout history, Will and Ariel Durant, Lessons from History and, and you know, texts like this that we have, we know that this typically results in either redistribution of wealth through legislation or revolution. And so when you look at the potential for revolution, what we studied and led to the creation of the book for right now was this massive amount of economic uncertainty that we see across the planet. And that was evidenced by the huge increases we've seen in protests around the world. So in the last 20 years, protests have doubled in terms of frequency, but they've increased 1000% in terms of participation from the 50 year average of the 20th century. That shows a lot of people are upset. A lot of people are uncertain about the future. So when you have inequality, AI ratcheting up that economic uncertainty and then climate change impact on top of that, you know, we've got some really fundamental issues we have to solve. I actually want to dig into five of the issues that you talk about in the book kind of individually, although I'm sure we'll talk about how they're also intertwined. And you teed up inequality. So let's actually start there. I mean, you mentioned that the wealth of the world's billionaires topped $10 trillion for the first time during the pandemic. Just to show the difference, 150 million people globally slipped back into extreme poverty during the same time. How do we fix this? So there's two ways. Either you say we've got to redistribute wealth so that everyone gets their fair share, or we're rethinking about economics in terms of things like minimum wage and so forth. But the other area is to say, well, technically or economically, we may have the ability here to reduce the impact of the poorest that we have in our societies. So for example, we should 
be able to eliminate homelessness. That should be, you know, a goal of society. But unfortunately, homelessness increased during the pandemic and is still at risk for many people in terms of problems with rental properties and potential evictions. Healthcare. This is an ongoing argument in the United States about who's going to pay for this. But we show in the book that we could reduce the cost of healthcare by 70% from where it is today through attacking various measures. And so you could make universal healthcare available to all of the population at a fraction of the cost of the existing system. So why would you argue against that? And then things like universal basic income as a mechanism to combat techno unemployment. And we look at different ways that we could pay for UBI in the book as well. So if you put all of those things together, we could provide an economy that first and foremost looks after the needs of its citizens before it worries about economic growth. And that's really a philosophical shift that we need in terms of economic theory, is what is the economy for? Is the economy there to produce GDP growth, get stock market returns, to you know, create trade balances and you know, surpluses? Or should it be there to serve the populace? first and foremost. Because if we judge it by the former, then the US is the most successful economy the world has ever seen. But if we judge it by the latter, its ability to look after the basic needs of citizens, it's a failure. And the problem is that Washington doesn't seem to be able to come to any sort of agreement on this, even within just the Democratic Party right now. Right? So as you look out into the future, and I have followed your career long enough to know that you have been a very successful prognosticator of changes in particular in the financial industry, how do you think this shakes out? Here's the point. At some point, we're going to be able to automate government at a high level and dramatically reduce the size of government. But to do that, we have to be able to reach consensus on major policy decisions. And so consensus making mechanisms are really critical. Where you have representative government in the way we do it today, you can have it corrupted by lobbying groups and things like that. We see that happening right now, as you mentioned. So one of the things we talk about is virtual consensus making and policy setting. It's very interesting. When you look at Thomas Jefferson, what he said about the citizens' right to vote and participate in government, he had a very similar view to Plato and Socrates of old, where education, he believed, was essential to the citizens' ability to have a positive contribution to governance. We have to change governance uh, and policy setting in two ways. The first is we have to make sure that everyone that is being involved in consensus making around specific policies have enough education or they're involved directly in the domain so they've got enough knowledge to participate in that conversation productively. And so that's one thing, framing consensus making around specific domains with experts or people invested in that specific space. And then using a virtual platform, the second piece, to allow consensus building amongst the various different groups till you get policy consensus. Virtual Taiwan, which has trialed this over the last few years, has been enormously successful at doing this in, in limited What's virtual Taiwan? 
So it is basically a, a digital governance mechanism that they created as a trial in Taiwan to see if they could solve some sort of sticky policy issues where there was very polarized opinions. One was, for example, around companies like Uber and their operation and how, you know, you've got contract workers that weren't under, you know, getting their benefits through the system and things like that. Others was involved in um, sale of alcohol and other things. And this consensus mechanism, which used social media, it used chat rooms, it pulling people together and people voting on certain things, was able to get to policy consensus very quickly, much quicker than we see policymakers in government being able to reach consensus on issues because it was truly representative. The people that really mattered in terms of the outcome of those decisions were directly involved and compromises were able to be made quite rapidly. So that sort of real-time participation in government is possible with the technology we have. But again, constraining that so that it's around people that are really technically invested in that domain so that they can have uh, real input into the problem problem solving is sort of key, but it removes the representative government element. Well, it does. But I'm thinking about all the machinations that we've gone through with the Facebook whistleblower in the last couple of months and how we can't even trust the information that comes across so many of our social and other media channels these days, right? There's a real lack of trust in that information, depending on who you are and what you're listening to. And so I'm just wondering, do you think this will happen? And how long is it going to take? Well, it's going to take the next 30 years. Here's the key element here is consensus building is going to become critical for the way we move forward. Even if you look at COP26, which we just had recently, the ability to get consensus on things like carbon output and you know those sort of things is quite difficult. Let's face it, national climate change policy makes no sense. If America had the most progressive climate policy in the world and was super aggressive and say, all right, we're going to cut all fossil fuels and all coal plants in the next five years, there's something really radical. But China and India don't play ball with that, then it doesn't mean anything because we need consensus on a global basis. So the use of artificial intelligence globally, the ethics around that, how we respond to climate change, what we do with 300 million to a billion eco-refugees displaced by climate change. You know, all of these things require global cooperation. And so we're just going to have to get much better at consensus building. But the drive to this is also about resource allocation, being more efficient with our resources and making sure that we can do more renewable, sustainable initiatives. That requires high level of automation in terms of resource allocation to be effective, taking out the best interests and just really looking at outcomes. So I think that's largely inevitable, but it's going to take 20 to 30 years. It's a philosophical change more than anything, Jean. You know, we have to change the way we think about humanity in terms of organizing principles. So let's talk a little bit more short term as we talk about AI and the rise of technology. You say in the book, and you just basically made the same point, that by 2035, we're going to see an increase in many jobs becoming obsolete 
And at the same time, there will be a shortage of skilled STEM workers. I read an article earlier in the week that when you look at the people who have quit their jobs, particularly the women who have left the workplace, 80% say they want a STEM job. We know that's going to set us up for the future. If you were giving short-term advice to our listeners based on this longer-term forecast, how can we best prep ourselves for this future world and for several decades of career success? So lifelong learning is really important here, especially through this transition period to highly automated societies. So the ability to adapt and the ability to be able to change your career fairly rapidly by learning new skills, particularly in the STEM arena, is going to be a really valuable skill set. And so even for our children going through education systems today, the ability to problem solve, to learn new skills rapidly in very diverse areas, I think is something that we should be teaching that sort of skills. The closest we've got to this is probably the Nordic system where they have a sort of, you know, maybe Montessori in in sort of classical terms. You know, there are mechanisms for changing the way people can learn. But you're right, the labor shortages, whenever we have booms, like the dot-com boom in the 90s and the early noughties, the Tronics boom in the 60s, we always have this pattern of it changes employment You have unemployment as a result of technology displacing people and you have labor shortages because, you know, you don't have the right skills. And and in the U.S. right now, we're not training in anywhere near enough STEM graduates to fill the jobs that we already have, let alone the jobs that are coming. China produces three PhD STEM graduates for every one that we produce in the United States. That's why we need the H-1B system today to supplement our workforce. But it would be better if we could actually build an education system that had STEM as its output. But we are a very 20th century industrial nation in terms of thinking here in the US as respect to employment. People are entering university right now with finance jobs that will be obsolete by the time they graduate. And so that's really the core problem. Hey, everybody, it's Jean. If you want to continue unlocking your potential, then you should also check out Think Fast, Talk Smart, produced by our friends at Stanford Graduate School of Business. Think Fast, Talk Smart is the Webby Award-winning best business podcast that received nearly 50 million downloads. It's the number one career podcast in 95 countries, so you know it's worth your time. Each week, host and Stanford lecturer Matt Abraham sits down with experts to discuss the best tips to hone and develop your communication skills from making small talk that leaves a big impression to keeping your nerves in check while speaking to being more persuasive. Whether you're working on your elevator pitch or planning an important meeting, strong communication skills are critical to business. All that and so much more is available on Think Fast, Talk Smart. Listen every Tuesday wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube. Dive into the heart of crime with Foul Play Crime Series. Immerse yourself in the most perplexing cases where each twist and turn is more baffling than the last. With riveting storytelling and detailed analysis, Foul Play brings the unsolved and unexplained to life, captivating your imagination. Listen to Foul Play Crime Series now, where every story is a puzzle waiting to be solved. 
We're talking with Brett King, author of The Rise of Techno-Socialism, How Inequality, AI, and Climate Will Usher in a New World. So when it comes to technology and managing our money, I can point to a number of ways that it has been just incredibly helpful in my adult life and a number of ways in which it has evolved to be incredibly helpful in my adult lives. We have apps now that can actually look into our bank accounts and predict how much they can afford to swipe into savings. We've got advancements in 401ks where we auto-enroll people and auto-escalate their contributions. And as a result, they not only contribute, but they contribute much, much more than they would have otherwise. Where is the world of technology and our money today? And where is it going? So obviously, I'm, I'm a big fan of the tech approach. I think, you know, we focused a lot on financial education and financial literacy in the past, but we're now showing that tools that you could use in your daily life can be just as effective, if not more effective. So as you said, you know, predictive analytics, predictive cash flow, you know, showing you what bills you have coming down the pipe, you know, helping you manage your money, raising awareness of what you're spending is a key element. You know, I, I worked with TD MySpend on their TD MySpend app, for example, and the customers there that use that app every day save five to eight percent month on month compared with customers who didn't use the tool and so if you're able to save five to eight percent more each month then that's going to make a big impact on your overall savings and financial well-being and it was just raising awareness of showing people how much they spend on eating out or taxis for example and people making life choices around that awareness changes their spending habits so this is one arena where by 2025, I think we're going to see the smart bank account wars. You know, you're going to start to see banks competing for your dollars and your purse based on how intelligent those bank accounts are. What is a smart bank account and how is it different from the bank accounts we have today? So if you look at the difference between the wallets that are emerging in places like China and even for the challenger banks that we see globally, you know, Varo just raised uh, half a billion dollars, but you've got New Bank in LATAM that raised three quarters of a billion and is now IPOing, Kakao in South Korea and so forth. When you look at the, the wallets that are emerging and the challenger banks that we see, one of the things they do is they're giving you more and more tools to manage your money. And so your app becomes much more central, not just to saving money, but your day-to-day discretionary spending and giving you context to your money, helping you understand whether that purchase was a good or bad purchase, or helping you understand you know, what you've got coming up that you need to start thinking about. So that sort of contextualization of financial services, and then think about products like what we call buy now, pay later, you know, instant mm-hmm. access to credit. So instead of having a credit card, you know, people won't use credit cards in the future. It'll just be access to credit when and where you need it. But then again, assessing your ability to manage that credit or whether you really need to take that finance facility or helping you think about that. Basically a money coach in your pocket that gives you access to the utility of banking when and where you need it. Well, I was wondering about the coaching element. You and I have talked before about our coaching program. It's called Finance Fix. And we built people into the equation. It's part online learning, but it's also part one-on-one coaching and part small group work. 
And we did that because we know that our audience is women. And I've seen a lot of research, and I personally fall into this camp, that there are many women who would prefer to learn from a person than would prefer to learn from a computer you know, or an app. So where are the humans in these silos? Well, I think if you look at the fastest growing financial institutions in the world today, they all using digital scale, right? So they all acquiring customers digitally. One good example is N26 in the German market. It's about to become the second largest bank in Germany. And their growth has been capped by the central bank because they've been growing so fast. So they're limited to 70,000 new customers a month right now. But that's a great example of acquiring customers and building a really impressive digital bank. When you look at, for example, Betterment here in the United States, which is a robo-advisor, they also went the other way where they were able to acquire all of these customers, but then they recognized that some people need that personal touch. And so they added, you know, human advisors into their business after their robo-advisor platform right. was quite mature. And I think that's a good analogy to use here is that we can build the crowd and we can build mechanisms or financial communities that can help each other through digital, but then give them platforms that allow them to share their tips and ideas and work collaborating together. Again, I think the consensus making piece here is important. You know, you could have people that want to invest and they want to invest based on mission, right? You know, and so how do I invest in sustainable businesses? You know, that's something that a human advisor could come in and uh, lead a discussion on that more productively than a tool set for sure. Coming back to your book, Some of the statistics that you share are really frightening, but you do share some silver linings. And you've said it's possible that we could eliminate poverty and, again, homelessness thanks to technology. My question one more time, how much longer do we have to wait? Again, this is sort of a philosophical question about the economy. What's the purpose of the economy? Is it to look after the needs of the citizens or is it to create economic growth? That realignment, I think, needs to come around the same time that techno unemployment happens because there will be a point in time where we recognize you can't just assume that someone will get a job and that will look after their basic needs because those jobs may not be available. And at that point, you have to have a mechanism where the economy supports those people despite the fact that they just cannot work because there's not enough work available because we've automated so much of society. So philosophically, we have to have a change about what is the economy's responsibility to look after our citizens. We know, for example, that if you've got a homeless person on the streets of San Francisco, that the policing and medical costs and support costs, administrative costs around those homeless people is somewhere around $35,000 a year that's spent on policing homelessness per person. And yet we know that with a 3D printed home that we could print a new home in 24 hours for three or $4,000. So the economics of keeping people on the street don't work anymore. You know, it's cheaper to get them off the street into housing, but we need the political will. And, you know, here in the United States, it's like we blame the homeless. It's their fault that they put themselves in that position rather than saying, well, the costs just don't work. Let's get them off the street. 
the same with the healthcare thing. You know, 40% of diagnosis in the United States is wrong. So you've got a one in two chance of when you go to a doctor with a serious health condition, getting the wrong diagnosis. 40% of the cost of healthcare today in the United States is administrative costs. And those costs mean that the United States pays twice for healthcare outcomes in the United States than the OECD average. So we know we could reduce the cost of the healthcare system down to a fraction of what it is today and provide healthcare with, to everybody. But we've got to get that through the policymakers that are paid by the lobbying groups from Big Pharma and so forth to get that to happen. So it's more us saying philosophically, we have to look after our people first and foremost, and then we can have the economic you know, growth on top. And we have to do that, I think, first and foremost, where climate is concerned. Absolutely. The numbers that you've been tossing out about the number of people that will be displaced by climate disruptions are just astonishing. I think wrapping our brains around that is important for everyone to do. And I think we all know members of my children's generation and their peers who are saying, yeah, we're not having kids. We are not bringing children into this world because they are so afraid of what is to come. What can we all do in order to help ourselves, our families, but also society get through this as painlessly as possible. I'm a big fan of controlling the things that you can control. Everything that we've talked about today feels to me like it just falls into one of those buckets where, boy, I can't do all that much about this on an individual level. I have to wait for the forces to align. But if I just want to do something, what do I do? Look, I think the first thing is sort of changing the way we think about markets, competition, economics. You know, people treat wealth and accumulation of wealth like it's an Olympic sport, like you have got winners and losers. When I think what the climate issue is going to teach us is that we are all brothers and sisters. We're all in this together. We can't solve this by competing against each other. We have to compete for each other. And I think that's the philosophical shift here is rather than making a decision that's going to have a negative impact on someone else, how can we make better decisions that collectively is going to benefit all of humanity? It's only by working together we're going to fix the climate. And if we learn to work together, guess what? The most advances humanity has made technologically and in other areas in terms of science has always been when we work together. The Human Genome Project, the Apollo Project, building the Great Wall of China, even the Second World War, okay, on different science, but massive technological advances because the populace was working together with a single goal. When we can come together on solving the problem of climate, then we can come together on solving the problems of AI and its introduction to society, inequality, poverty, homelessness. You know, we can eliminate death as a disease, you know, in the future if we work together. And that's really, I think, the core outcome that came to me during the writing of this book is there's four potential futures that, you know, are there and only one of them is really optimal for humanity. 
and the existence we have today is not optimal for humanity. It's optimal for a very small part of humanity. And so becoming more collectively focused in building a better world for everyone in the future is what I hope is the outcome of this uh, very trying and testing period of human history. On that optimistic note, we will leave it. Brett King, the book is Techno-Socialism. If our listeners are looking for more from you, your podcast is Breaking Banks, but where else should they go? So you can go to www.riseoftechnosocialism.com or technosocialism.com if you prefer. You can go to brettking.com, my page with double T, and you'll all find links to the book. We have a trailer, video trailer on some of the key points of the book and some key factoids out of it and links to all the stores where you could get it. So thank you again, Jean. Thanks for being here. And we'll be right back with Catherine and your mailbag. Before we take your questions today, I want to welcome a new sponsor to the show. We are very excited to tell everyone that Her Money is supported by BCU, one of the nation's fastest growing credit unions. BCU helps members make smart financial decisions by offering the products, services, and caring support they need for whatever stage of life they're in. Find out if you're eligible by visiting www.bcu.org. And again, BCU, welcome to the Her Money family. And Her Money's Catherine Tuggle joins me now for your mailbag. Hey, Catherine. Hello, Jean. That was so interesting. Well, I want to know what you thought. So I met Brett doing a conference. I've seen him a couple of times on stage. He's always fascinating. We had the opportunity to sit down together for a moderated conversation at a conference that happened over the last year. And I just think his ideas are broad and important. But I also think that was a little bit of a different conversation for us. It was, but I also think we need to have those conversations. We tackle everything on Her Money in the same way that we tackled our Sober Curious episode, in the same way that we tackle issues of race and inequality. The bigger, broader, global economic issues are just as important. Absolutely. Absolutely. But sometimes I think he threw in a lot of terms and a lot of just a lot of abbreviations. And I didn't stop the conversation every time to ask him to define them. I hope all of you listeners don't mind that. I actually thought about pausing him and saying, okay, what's that? What's that? What's that? And then I decided, you know what? The little definitions are not the important thing in this conversation. It's the big picture. It's the big ideas. It's here's what's coming. It's what can we do in the moment to try to grab some control of what feels like a runaway train. Yeah, very well said. I think that I was glad he ended on a positive note (laughs) because it's a lot to process. And we have, particularly over the last couple of years, there have just been some very real concerns about our future that have been presented. And it's nice to focus on the positives. Yeah, yeah, 100%. You guys did not hear this, but after... We wrapped that conversation with Brett. Catherine asked him if our listeners have specific questions for him, would he come back and answer them? And he graciously said yes. So if you've got questions on the conversation that we just had, 
send them into mailbag at hermoney.com or post them in the Facebook group and we'll bring them back. Yeah, definitely. If you email mailbag at hermoney.com, put in the subject line, Brett King, and we will get a special episode together for you guys. All right. And let's answer today's questions. Absolutely. Our first question today comes to us from Catherine. She writes, Hi, Jean and Catherine. First up, thank you for your incredible podcast. Each week, I always take away something valuable and insightful. I was interested in hearing what you might do if you were in my situation. I'm 49, single, no children, and no debt. In 2022, I'll be selling my home, and with the proceeds plus my savings, I estimate I'll have approximately $1.2 million. 110,000 of this is already invested in stocks and ETFs. FYI, I don't think I'll need to pay any tax on the sale of my home, as I don't believe I'll exceed the $250,000 capital gain threshold. I also have $23,000 in a Roth IRA, $300,000 in a 401k, and I plan to contribute the max to both of these this year, $6,000 plus $19,500. I work as a freelancer, so I fund my own retirement, healthcare, and generally earn a minimum of $100,000 a year. My work has usually been in Los Angeles, but I'm not crazy about living here, and I'd like to try another city or state. If I moved to another area, I was also thinking I would work less and maybe go back to school. I was actually interested in exploring the idea of becoming a financial coach, but we'll see. I'm not sure yet. I live simply and don't need a house, but was thinking a condo or townhouse would be my next purchase. But I'm slightly reluctant to buy in LA again because, like I said, I'm not sure I want to be here long term. The idea of renting is off-putting to me as it seems like wasted money. Then again, I know buying and selling costs would most likely not be recovered if I bought something in LA and sold it just a few years later. So what would you do given all of this? Thank you again for taking the time to read my email, and I hope you're both keeping safe and well. Thanks so much for writing, Catherine. Thank you for the nice words. And boy, oh boy, have you set yourself up well. I mean, you have choices. You have choices in how much you want to work. You have choices in where you want to live. I would take the next few years and explore those choices without tying yourself down to a property that you own. I'm coming back to something that you said in the middle of your letter. My work has usually been in Los Angeles, but I'm not crazy about living here. If now is not the time for you to look elsewhere, I don't think there's ever going to be a time. People are moving around like crazy. People who are able to work remotely have just seen their worldviews open up. And even in industries where it's tougher to work remotely. My guess is that you could find another part of the country where you could do the kind of work that you want to do. And I would take the time to explore those areas right now. What I wouldn't do is buy a property. I wouldn't buy a property for a couple of reasons. First of all, I think the housing market is a little bit overheated. And if it's a little bit overheated and you buy in this overheated market and then you need to sell there's a chance that you could lose money on that property. The fact that interest rates look like they'll be going up is gonna play into this. It's gonna make mortgage rates higher and that's gonna drive property values a little bit lower. At least that's how it's happened historically. Also, when you factor in the costs of closing and the costs of 
buying a home transaction, it's not cheap. And for that reason, I would just try to pick an area of the country that you do think that you want to be in for five years or longer. And once you find it, buy something. But in the interim, I'd rent. And I'd rent in an area that allows you not just to explore whether you'd like to live there, but that offers you a place to get the continuing education that you think you need. You said you might want to go back to school to become a financial coach. You might want to go back to school for something else. Sounds like a good idea to me. When you pick your new home, make sure that new home has the educational options you want. Make sure it has the options you want for exploring the outdoors, if that's important to you. If you're a foodie, make sure it has plenty of great places to explore culinary adventures. Just figure out what you're looking at, plant a stake in the ground, live there for a year, live there for two years, see how it feels. And once it feels good, once you think you want to stay, then I would look at buying. That's just my take. What do you think, Catherine? I think that's fantastic advice. And I think that there are so many more options than there ever used to be. There are long-term rentals on Airbnb. There are short-term rentals from a landlord. In the remote work world that we live in today, People can rent anything anywhere, and I think that is by far the best option before you put down real roots. I always come back when people are talking about moving somewhere new and somewhere different. I always come back to the many stories I've heard of retirees who had this seed in their mind that, oh, when I retire, I'm going to live in Tucson, or when I retire, I'm going to live in Palm Springs or wherever. And then they picked up and they moved and they bought something and they got there and they were like, yeah, these are not my people. This is not my scene. This is not my weather. I have not had a good hair day in six months and I have to get out of here. And they move again, often back to where they came from. That may not be the case for you, but don't lock yourself in because of real estate. That's such a good point. Yeah, I have a friend who did that very thing and nine months later moved back to his old neighborhood. It happens. Yeah, it does. It does. It does. What else do we have? Our next question comes to us today from Kelly. She writes, hi, Dean and team. I'm a longtime listener and a huge fan of the podcast. Thank you for all that you do. I'm a single 33-year-old female, and I have a question about what to do with some company stock. I max out my ESPP contributions at $25,000 a year at a 15% discount, and I have about $500,000 worth of vested RSUs. I know, lucky me. Wait a minute, Catherine, before you go, I know I didn't stop Brett King and ask him to define terms, but I'm actually going to stop you for just a second because I don't think we've talked about ESPPs and RSUs. Very quickly, an ESPP is an employee stock purchase plan. It is a company-run program where employees can purchase company stock at a discounted price. RSUs are restricted stock units. They're basically stock that you're given. You receive it as a grant and they are counted as income for tax purposes, but you have to vest into them over time. I think that's just important information for everyone to have. And okay, you can pick up the question. Thanks, Jean. She says, 
While the market will always be unpredictable, I do have high hopes that the share price will continue to steadily grow as it has been consistently year over year. I recently purchased a new townhome valued at $493,000. I put down 20% at a 2.8% interest rate. I have no other debt or loans, six months of emergency savings, and a fully paid off car. My total salary is $128,000 with an expected promotion coming this month. I currently have $85,000 in a 401k, a 6% contribution with no company match, $56,000 in a Roth IRA, I can no longer contribute due to exceeding the maximum salary plus stock, and I have $20,000 in an HSA that I max out annually and do not use for medical expenses. I look at it as a backup emergency fund and potential retirement fund. I would love to retire early and do not want children, regardless if I meet a long-term partner or not. The idea of being debt-free and paying off the remainder of my mortgage with my RSUs is really appealing, about $293,000. However, I do have a great interest rate and I hope my company stock will continue to grow and I'd like to plan for an early retirement too. What would be your recommendation? Thank you so much. Well, thank you so much for writing. It's such an interesting question. I come back and I know you know I'm going to come back to the growth of those RSUs, the growth of the stock versus the interest rate on your mortgage. Because when we're comparing returns on your money, what we look at when it comes to paying off a debt is the interest rate on that debt minus any sort of a tax deduction. So if you've got a mortgage and that mortgage is close to 3%, as yours is, when you pay off that mortgage early, that's just a 3% return on your money. On the flip side, money in the markets, just on average, grows about 8% a year. And that's looking at the Dow and looking at the S&P and going all the way back to when those indexes, those indices were first tracked. So the return that you get from those RSUs is greater than the return that you get from paying off that mortgage, even when we take taxes into account because the RSUs are taxed as income. There are two other things to consider here. The first is the fact that a greater portion of your wealth is tied up in the stock of the company that you work for than most people would recommend. In general, you're going to see recommendations for having no more than 10 to 25% of your wealth in the stock of your company. And that's because if your company fell on hard times, the likelihood that you lose that value and your job at the same time is probably greater than it should be. You're taking more risks just by having all of those eggs in a singular basket. So if you're thinking of taking a little money out of the RSUs and diversifying it by either putting it into a different investment or by paying down the mortgage more quickly, I would be okay with that. What I wouldn't do is take all of the money out at once, pay the taxes, and wipe that mortgage clean away. I think you've got many other more profitable alternatives for that money. The last thing that I would say to you is I really get the 
emotional appeal of not having a mortgage, despite the low interest rate. It is something that is meaningful to me as well. But you're 33 years old. You've got so much time on the clock to figure things out. What I'd rather see you do is make an appointment with a financial advisor. There are a lot of moving pieces here. And I would try to make an appointment with a financial advisor who is familiar with your company plan. If you've got access to one through your company plan, I would certainly take a look at that. You could also fill out our questionnaire at hermoney.com. Just click on the button that says find an advisor. Make sure you note in that questionnaire that you've got RSUs because you'll find somebody that is very familiar with dealing with them and able to help you in that regard. But we'll serve up for free, as you know, the names of three financial advisors who can help you. With so much money at such a young age, I think charting your path to particular goals at this point would be a really, really good idea. Yeah, Jean, thank you. And I also totally see her point about not wanting to sell her stock because if you believe that it's going to grow over time, then you got to stick with it. Absolutely. But I want to see her making sure that she's got other efforts underway to provide diversification so that so much of her wealth is not in one place. Yeah. Not having all your eggs in one basket. Always good. Thank you so much. Thanks, Catherine. And in today's Thrive, some strategies for making tough financial decisions. Throughout your life, you will make many choices about money. Some won't be significant. Others will carry a much heftier price tag and the weight of a lot of responsibility. And it's essential to have a solid strategy for approaching them. At hermoney.com this week, we tell you how to break it down, roll up your sleeves and dig in. First, step back and assess your options. Whenever there are important choices to be made, you have a few options. Before you get overwhelmed, just take a step back, make some lists, and put numbers with each alternative so that you can assess a clear winner and loser objectively. Next, establish a goals-driven plan. Tough decisions are easier to weigh when you know your financial goals and have an understanding of just how you're tracking against them. Think of the plan you devise as your roadmap for navigating everything life throws your way. When building a financial plan, you want to be realistic about your goals, review that plan once a year, and make changes as life changes. Finally, take it personally. You may have heard the advice to be less emotional about your financial decisions, but it's much more important to be aware of your feelings and honor those feelings. Just try not to let your feelings rule you. Check in with your emotions before making any critical financial decisions. And if you're feeling anxious or uncertain, that is a sign that it's time to take a break until you feel more rational or that it's time to seek out some additional guidance and help to make sure that you are making an informed decision you can feel good about. Thanks so much for joining me today on Her Money, and thanks to Brett King for his insight on where our world is headed, our place in it, and what we need to know to prepare for our futures. 
If you like what you hear, I hope you'll subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. We love hearing what you think. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Fidelity. We produce this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Video Helper, and our show comes to you through Megaphone. Thanks for joining us, and we'll talk soon. Bye.